You're listening to CSN International, your home for the latest praise and worship music and solid Bible teaching. In just a moment, we're going to join a study from the River Christian Fellowship, the home of CSN. But first, I'd like to invite you to come out and join us in person. We're located in Twin Falls, Idaho, and have our Sunday morning service at 10 a.m. Mountain Time and Sunday and Wednesday evening services at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Visit theriverchristianfellowship.com and click on the map for directions or to schedule a visit. We're glad you're tuned in and hope you enjoy today's verse-by-verse study recorded live during one of our Wednesday or Sunday services. Now let's join the teaching already underway. Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, I, I started last week if you're here with the sermon about asking you to do something kind of difficult, or at least more difficult than just like sitting there and absorbing a message, but to uh, identify with Job's suffering as we're studying Job. And I said, you know, I'm going to kind of skip the, the little stories, the, the cute stories or the sob stories, and, and let's just get right to it and identify with Job and his suffering. And I, I want to start this week kind of asking a similar thing of you, because we're going to deal with some important sort of intense things and and this might be even more difficult than identifying with Job's suffering is uh, I want to ask you to be honest with yourself at the start which really is probably the hardest thing to do and be honest with yourself about about your pride I guess let's just go right there I mean that's the problem we're talking about tonight is our pride and let's start by being honest because as Christians we love truth because God loves truth. And we don't need to hide or grandstand or boast or, or make up false things to make ourselves look better because we worship a God who loves us for who we are, failures and all. That's why He came to live for us and to die for us. So we don't have to hide. Because pride is about hiding. I mean, we hide because of our pride. And this is, let's be honest here at the start. So think about pride. I mean, what it basically is, if to define it biblically, I guess summarize what the Bible would say, there's kind of two parts of pride. There's one part, it's thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think. It's, it's sort of self-worship, it's selfishness, a living for myself. The other part of it, they go hand in hand, is if you're going to think more of yourself than you are, that means you're going to have to think less of God than He is. If those two things work together, you elevate yourself and you downgrade God all in the name of I want myself to feel better about myself and I want to be in charge of my life and do what I think is right or what makes me feel good or what's fun for me. And that's what our pride is. And it's difficult to be honest about it because like I said, pride wants to hide and say, well, I'm not really that bad. There's other people way worse than I am and I'm not really doing anything that bad. And really... The culture throws this at you too that makes it even more difficult to be honest about it is they'll tell you pride is okay. The world will tell you pride is okay. And really not even just okay, but it's a virtue. That pride is a good thing. It wasn't until I became a Christian and heard the truth of the Bible that I realized the seriousness of pride and self-centeredness and being all about yourself because the world will tell you that is what life is all about. Life is all about living for yourself, being in charge, calling the shots, doing what you want to do, pursuing your own dreams. Who cares who you hurt because I want to do it. Now they call it other things, self-esteem. You've got to have self-esteem. You've got to think highly of yourself. 
Self-love. You've got to take care of yourself first because if you don't do that, how are you going to care about other people? But pride is the root of all sin. You're the root of all sin. All sin stems from pride. St. Augustine said that pride is the sin that's pregnant with all other sins. The all other sin, pride gives birth to it. Because pride is about me at the center. And almost every problem in your life and in my life is in some way connected with pride. I would say everything, but I don't want to you know, overly generalize. But I'll say almost every problem is in some way connected that way. Almost, not everything. So we need to take it seriously. We need to be honest about this problem we have within us. Because pride ruins our relationships. Because pride in our relationships, what that does is it puts me more important in my relationships than other people. And that means I'm not loving people, I'm using people to feel better about myself. See, that's pride. And what that does is it crushes the other person. I need this person to fulfill me. I need this person to build me up. And when they don't, I'm going to take it out on them because they didn't give me what I needed. Right? That's pride. And then we'll lie to make ourselves look better to that person because we don't want to be honest about it. That's pride. Right? Pride affects our tongues. The things that come out of our mouths. Because we'll tear other people down to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. That's why we do it. That's why we gossip about people. That's why we lie about ourselves. That's why we lie about other people, is to make ourselves feel better. Pride controls our sinful behaviors. It's again this idea, I don't care who it's going to hurt. I want it. It's going to be fun. Whether it's drugs, porn, money, worshiping your body, all these things. I could go on and on, just examples. It might not start, or it might not be that way to the point where I just want to have fun, but it started that way, or it was a good thing, and it was all about me. Pride will crush us. And that's the irony of pride. That pride is all about living for yourself, but when you do that, it crushes you. Because you're not really strong enough to take on all your own self, because you're too sinful even for yourself. Living for yourself is exhausting. The most selfish people are exhausted. And that's why we're so often exhausted, because we're trying to live for ourselves. And pride causes us not to seek God. See, and this is why it's like the root of all sin, because it's pride is what keeps us from God, fundamentally. See, if you're not a Christian, the, the pride comes in like it was with me before I was a Christian. I don't need God. Well, first of all, I said God doesn't exist, but that was because of my pride. I don't want Him to exist. I wanted to be God. But even if there is a God, I don't need Him because I'm not that bad. I haven't done anything all that bad. People way worse out there than me. And anyone who needs God is just weak and needs a crutch. That's pride. It separates us from God when we call ourselves Christians, but we're not. You know, I think there's a God out there, and I'm going to say that I worship Him, but I'm not really going to do anything about my life even though He asks me to. So I'm going to try to have best of both worlds. I'm going to live for myself, but sort of check the God box so that I can go to heaven when I die, supposedly. And pride separates us from God, even when we're born again Christians, where we turn God into this little guy who, who kind of exists to serve me. Hey God, I'm suffering right now. Give me comfort. God, my business is failing right now. Fix it. My marriage is failing. Fix it. And yeah, it's okay to ask God for those things, but when we turn God to that little guy who just gives us our wishes, then God exists to serve me, and that's all pride. See, we all have a pride problem. So let's, let's be honest about it. We all have it. None of us, none of us is innocent, and none of us has overcome this either, and none of us will overcome it. 
until we see Jesus. It's a thing we're going to struggle with until the day we die. One of the reasons why is because pride, you can't fight it because pride is about you. It's, it's like a, a circle. The more you fight it, the more you make it about you. And the more you think about yourself, the more proud you are. And it, it just, you can't get out of it without God pulling you out, without God intervening and saving you, without God forgiving you. So when we're trying to deal with this sin, we can't say, okay, I need to humble myself, because you can't. We need God to humble us. He's the one who can do it. So what we need about this is to hear from God. We can't just say, I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to deal with this pride in my life. We can't do it. We need God to speak to us. And that's what he's going to do tonight. He's going to speak to us on this issue of pride. Because he he talks to Job about it. And we're almost to the end. And it's amazing what we're going to read tonight, how God responds to Job. We've been studying Job for the past several months. We're getting close to the end. And Job has been suffering. And as he says, unfairly, and we would probably agree with him. He was a godly man doing what was right, and he was very blessed. And the whole reason why this suffering started in the first place was God was bragging about Job to Satan, about how godly Job was. And Satan accused uh, Job to God, and it ended up Job lost his, his possessions, his house, his children, and his health. He lost everything. And it's because God was proud of Job in a good sense. God was pleased with Job. That's why it happened, and that's, that's tough. Job doesn't know that, though. All Job knows is he's lost everything, and he's suffering, and his friends try to help him, and they don't help at all. And out of nowhere, we'll see tonight, God shows up. God speaks to him in the suffering. And instead of God putting the spotlight on Job and saying, Oh, Job, it's been so tough for you. He, he comes at Job's pride, which is amazing, but it's very hard to, to think of. Because Job, yeah, he was suffering, and he was a godly man, but in his suffering, he said some things he shouldn't have said. He accused God of wrongdoing. He blamed God. He, he put words in God's mouth. He thought he could speak for God. He thought that God didn't know what he was doing, and that he didn't sin bad enough for to deserve any of this. And what God says tonight should blow our minds and should humble us if we're going to hear it with humble hearts through the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Because we've all suffered, maybe not like Job has, but we've all been there or we are there right now. And what God has to say to Job, God has to say to us as well. Because not only have we suffered, we've also been proud. So we'll see tonight is that because we're powerless against pride, We need God to humble us. Because if He doesn't, pride is going to keep destroying all those things I said, our relationships, ourselves, our relationship with God. That's what pride does. So let's go to Job chapter 38. We'll read uh, chapters 38, 39, and then the very beginning of 40. As God shows up here at the end. Now before we look at this, I think it's almost just as interesting. I shouldn't even say I, I, not. Okay, it's worth pointing out what God does not say. 
It's not as interesting as what he does say. But, but there's a few things God doesn't say that we should be clear about. Because if God doesn't say it, I'm not sure if we should say it. Right? So let's, here's some things God doesn't say. Let's build it up a little bit. Now God shows up out of nowhere. They didn't ask God to show up because he's not under control. God shows up and he doesn't say these things to Job in his suffering. He doesn't see Job suffering and, and he appears and says, Hey Job, I have a plan for you. Just hang in there. He doesn't say anything like that to him. I've said that. I've heard that. And I'm saying these things because I mean, we've just went through our second miscarriage in the past year and I've heard about all these things. They don't help. And God doesn't say it. It doesn't help. He doesn't show up and say to Job, Hey Job, you know all things work out for good. Just look for the silver lining. Look for the bright spot in this. You'll see it, Job. And he doesn't say stuff like that. That doesn't help. He doesn't show up and says, Job, this has been so tough. Let's, let's hug it out. He doesn't say anything like that. He doesn't show up and say, Job, I'll pray for you. Let me know if you need something. He doesn't say that. God doesn't show up and say, Job, how dare you question me? Hey, Job had questioned God and, and God has some issues he needs to work out with Job, but he doesn't yell at Job for questioning him, which is very instructive and important because questioning God is an act of faith. He doesn't rebuke Job for that. He doesn't show up and say, Job, you are condemned to hell because of what you've said. You're beyond hope. He doesn't say that. He doesn't show up and say, Job, you're suffering. And here's eight steps to overcoming your suffering. The O stands for obstacles. Look at your obstacles. The V stands for virtue. Be a good person. The E stands for energy. Keep your spirits up. I I could go and see it's not hard. I just did that off the top of my head. He doesn't show up and say that to him. He's not a self-help guy. He doesn't show up and say, yeah, you know, Job, it's been hard and it's your friend's fault. They should have helped you. They should have listened to you. They should have been more comforting. He doesn't say that. And he doesn't show up and say, Job, here's why you suffered. Let me lay it all out for you. Let me show you all my purposes in this. He doesn't say any of that stuff. And like I said, I bring that up before we look at this. Because all that kind of has something in common. That's the stuff we say to people. That's the stuff we hear from people. That's the stuff we might even tell ourselves when we're suffering. But all that stuff, what it has in common is it appeals to our pride. It puts the spotlight on us. What's God's plan for me in this? How is all things going to work out for me in this? uh, What's the eight steps I can have to overcoming suffering for me? It's, it's, that's all about me. That's all about pride. He doesn't appeal to Job's sense of pride or self. He puts the spotlight where it belongs on God, on himself, not on Job. So what about you? When you're suffering, when you're hearing these things or maybe even thinking these things, how do you tell if God's speaking to you or if you're just hearing some religious nonsense? God doesn't shine the spotlight on you. That's what we see here. In Isaiah 49, God says, or 48, God says, For my name's sake, I will defer my anger. And for my praise, I will restrain it from you, so that I do not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. 
For how should my name be profaned? And I will not give my glory to another. It says also in 1 John chapter 2, Your sins are forgiven you for His name's sake. See, all of this, all of God's relationship with us, all of Him saving us and forgiving us, is not because of us and we're great and He has a plan for us and we're going to overcome. It's for His sake. For the sake of His name, He's forgiven us. For His own sake, for His glory, He's done it. Why? He's worthy of glory. It says in Revelation that He is the Creator and therefore He is worthy to be praised. Hey, the praise should be to Him. It is not about us. So all that He's done for us is worthy of praise and amazing. But it's not about us. It's about Him. He did it for His name. So when we make Christianity into those, those things that we say to each other, how we can have a successful life, how we can overcome, how God can fix this, how God can fix that, we're wrong. That's not what the Bible's about. That's not what God is. It's for His name. If He'll be glorified through those things, then yeah, maybe it'll happen. But it's about Him, not about you. God doesn't say those things. So what does God say to Job and his suffering? Okay, let's look into it now and see what He actually does say. He doesn't say any of those things because... Job needs to be humbled. Like, like, let's go back to the beginning here. He needs to be humbled. We need to be humbled. So verse 1 of chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, right, God shows up out of nowhere. He had given no indication that He was coming. He had given no warning. He just shows up. Then God spoke to answer Job out of the whirlwind. He's not summoned. They didn't beg for God to show up and give them an answer. And then he goes, oh, here I am. Your summons have been answered. He's not manipulated. They didn't do enough good things for God to finally show up in his life. They didn't do enough bad things for God to finally show up in his life. He's not manipulated. He just comes because that's what he does. He's God. Just like he comes into our lives. right? As Christians, think about when, when he saved us. I wasn't trying to summon God into my life. I wasn't trying to manipulate God. He invaded my life. He showed up. Because that's what He does. He's not in our control. He shows up. And here, God shows up out of the whirlwind and answers Job. Here's what He says. His first words to Job. Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? It's not what I would expect God to answer, which means that's really God speaking. Right? The first time I read this, I'm blown away. This is what God has to say. Job has been suffering for 30 chapters and he's lost everything. And it's kind of God's fault, if you want to say it that way. And he shows up and he says, who is this guy? Who is this guy who doesn't know what he's talking about? And he's talking about Job. See, that's God showing up on the scene. He doesn't, I mean, he's called Job a godly man, so he's not just like dismissing Job, but what he's saying is, Job, you have not been speaking what is right. You don't know what you're talking about. You putting words into my mouth, you saying I'm a pretty good guy, I don't deserve this, you saying this is how God has to operate, and that's really the core of it. Job was saying God has to behave in this way. He comes up and he says that. Who are you? You don't know what you're talking about. It's not the God has a plan for your life kind of God we talk about so much. He's more powerful than that. In verse 3, Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you 
and you shall answer me. See, think about you and your pride. In your suffering or in your whatever, in, in your good deeds as well. In the living for ourselves and thinking we're so great. Think about that. Prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. He doesn't give Job a choice. You're going to answer. I'm going to question you and you're going to answer. Now that's, let's take that for us as well. As we said earlier, let's be honest. We have a problem with our pride and God is going to have some questions for us. And he has about, he has a ton of questions he's going to ask, but we'll summarize them into like 16 big questions. Yeah, 16, yeah, there's, there's a lot. Yeah, because Job has a lot of pride, we have a lot of pride, and God has to show him what's up. Okay, first, where were you during creation? That's his first question for Job and for us. Verse 4, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Yeah, where were you when I was doing all that, Job? You think you can tell me how to operate? You think you can tell me what I should do? Where were you when I was doing any of that? That's the question. So us, we who willfully sin against an almighty God and boast against Him, God, I don't deserve this from you. I've been a pretty good guy. Where were you when God was laying the foundations of the earth? If you have understanding, if you think you got God figured out, who determined the measurements? I mean, surely you know. That's what He's saying. For saying there's no God. Where were you during creation? Now let's get this out of the way at the beginning so I don't have to explain it like every single question. Okay, yeah, we have some scientific theories and all this stuff for all these things. But that doesn't get to the core of it. So if you want to say, where were you during creation? Oh, there's a big bang. If you want to say that, fine. But that doesn't get to the bottom of it. That's just an explanation that we have. It doesn't get to philosophically, why is there a creation? Where were you during that? Okay, so all this scientific stuff, let's, I'm not going to bring it up every single time. You can give scientific answers if you want. It doesn't get to the core of the thing of what God is asking. Where were you when He was creating the earth? Because God is Creator and we are not. And like I said, because He is Creator, He is worthy of worship. See, God created the universe and us because of His love. Not because he needed minions to worship him, but because of love. He created it, and he created it perfectly. He did not need us. He created us in an environment to be in a relationship with him. It's not about us, it's about him. He created it for his glory. God created you for his glory. That's your purpose on this earth, is to glorify your creator. And if you doubt that, well, where, are you, where were you when he created the earth? You tell him. The next question, who set the boundaries for the oceans? Verse 8, Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, when I fixed my limit for it and set bars and doors, when I said, This far you may come, but no farther, and here your proud waves must stop. Wait, where were you when, when the oceans had boundaries set for them? Yeah, again, you have scientific answers. But really, where where were you? Why is there boundaries there? Who put those there? 
Ooh, plate tectonics. They, again, I don't, I don't want to keep going back to that, but my point, am I making my point? Hey, okay. All right. See, God sets the limit for the ocean because God is in charge. He does it. He sets the limits. He knows what is helpful for our lives and what is not. So God says to the, to the waves, there, uh, when I said, this far you may come, but no farther, and here your proud waves must stop. He told the oceans to stop so there could be land for people to be blessed on. He's given us limits. Here's where you stop. Because if you go outside of that, that's not good for you. Yeah, that's where sin is. That's where pride is. And God says, no, here your proud waves must stop. Yeah, your proud waves must stop where God has told us. And if you don't think so, well, where were you when he made the boundaries? Who are you to say? Next question, do you make morning come? Verse 12, have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It takes on form like clay under a seal and stands out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld and the upraised arm is broken. Have you commanded the morning since your days began? You know, if you think you got your life under control, you don't need God. Right? I'm proud. I got to kind of figure it out for myself. Well, you can barely control your own life. If that, where were you? Who commanded the morning since your days began? If you can barely keep your life in check, why can we speak against an almighty God who controls the very rotation of the earth? Who brings the light every day? See, that's our pride. And God is in charge of the light and He sends light to shine into our darkness. Can we do that? We can't do that. But yet we boast against God and are proud. But do you make the morning come? Do you do that? Next question. Do you know the extent of everything? Verse 16. Have you entered the springs of the sea or have you walked in search of the depths? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the doors of the shadow of death? Have you comprehended the breadth of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. And tell God if you know how to run your life, if you know what's best for yourself. Well, have you been to the bottom of the ocean? Have you seen the gates of death? If you haven't, then stop. That's what he's saying. The one who has been to the gates of death is Jesus. Right? Jesus died. He entered into death to conquer death and rose from death to let you conquer it as well. See, we can't do any of that. We haven't even, yeah, we've been to the bottom of the ocean now, but we still haven't even explored most of it. How do we, when we haven't ex- explored this world, when we can't even explore our own selves and know the depths of our own sin, yeah, we think we can boast against God and tell Him how to run our lives. Verse 19. Do you know where light and darkness come from? Where is the way to the dwelling of light and darkness? Where is its place that you may take it to its territory, that you may know the paths to its home? Do you know it because you were born then or because the number of your days is great? Do you know where light and darkness come from? I mean, that should be simple. I mean, what gets more basic than light and darkness? Yeah, we don't know. Yeah, there's photons, blah, blah, blah. But we don't know where's light, where's darkness come from. But we can run our lives better than God. Right? We know more than He does. But we don't even know that. Have you entered the treasury of snow? Or have you seen the treasury of hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? By what way is light diffused, or the east wind scattered over the earth? Right? Did you make weather? That's what He's asking. Did you make the weather? 
Right? Can you store up the snow and the hail for the day of trouble? Like we can't even explain something like that. See, God stores those things up for the day of trouble. Just like He stores up our own sin and wickedness for the day of trouble. I mean, the, we saw last week where Elihu makes the point that we don't look to the light when it's bright outside. We look to the light when it's dark. And God stores up those dark times, that suffering for the day of trouble, so that we'll look to the light. Because He's in charge of the light. He'll bring us to the light. Verse 25. Who has divided a channel for the overflowing water, or a path for the thunderbolt, to cause it to rain on a land where there is no one, a wilderness in which there is no man, to satisfy the desolate waste, and cause to spring forth the growth of tender grass? Has the rain a father, or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb comes the ice, and the frost of heaven? Who gives a birth? The waters harden like stone, and the surface of the deep is frozen. Do you make rain? No, you don't. So again, I mean, he keeps making the same point over and over and over to get Job to realize you are proud. You need to be humbled by God. See, God makes a path for the thunderbolts. He's the one who makes path. It says in Isaiah that every mountain will be brought low. Every valley will be raised up. Every crooked path will be made straight to prepare the way for the Lord. And God makes a path for Him to enter into your heart, to to change you, to bring light to you, to bring you into the light out of darkness and show you your pride and wickedness. He creates paths, not us. He creates a path for the rain. He creates a path for salvation. But we think we can. We can't. Can you bind the cluster of the Pleiades or loose the belt of Orion? Can you bring out Maseroth in its season? Or can you guide the great bear with its cubs? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you set their dominion over the earth? Can, can you control the stars? God controls the stars. Because God is the ruler of heaven. We're not in charge of that. He is. Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that an abundance of water may cover you? Can you send out lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the mind? Or who has given understanding to the heart? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Or who can pour out the bottles of heaven when the dust hardens in clumps and the clouds cling together? It goes back to the weather. Can you control the weather? If you can, make it stop snowing. Can you control the weather? You can't. Like I said, you can barely control your own life. Yet we speak defiantly, proudfully to the God who's in control of all of that. Like we got to figure it out better than He does. So God, I mean, all these questions so far, this is all about nature. Just looking at nature and how little we are compared to God's nature. Yet we are the height of His creation as humans made in God's image. Right, and all these questions, the answer to these questions has to be no. These are rhetorical. No, we can't do any of this. See, and that's the point. Job thinks he can put words in God's mouth. He can tell God how he has to behave. And that's what we do. We have to admit that. Our pride says that. When we look at creation, just something like that, no. But he goes even more. Because that's God. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't relent until he gets Job to repent which doesn't happen for a couple more chapters. We'll do one more chapter tonight, though, because it gets to be a lot. So he goes now to the animal kingdom. He's looking at animals, continuing to ask him questions. 
Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lurk in their lairs to lie in wait? Who provides food for the raven when its young ones cry to God and wander about for lack of food? Do you make food for the animals? No, you don't. And God gives us spiritual food that we don't live on just bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, which is this book. Every word in this book, that is how we live. And we ingest that and digest that. And it becomes a part of who we are. And that's how God changes us because this is about Him. When we talk about even the danger of like sermons and stuff is making it too much about us. Yeah, He has stuff for us in this book, but it's about Him. Chapter 39. Do you know the time when the wild mountain goats bear young? Or can you mark when the deer gives birth? Can you number the months that they fulfill? Or do you know the time when they bear young? They bow down, they bring forth their young, they deliver their offspring, their young ones are healthy, they grow strong with grain, they depart and do not return to them. And did you create birth? You look at something like animals giving birth. How amazing is that? You didn't do that. You didn't give birth to yourself. You didn't give spiritual birth to yourself. right? God has to give you spiritual life because we're born spiritually dead, disconnected from Him. And He gives us spiritual life. We're not in control of that. If we're not in control of that, again, it's the same message repeated. Why do we think we can tell God what He can and cannot do when we can't control something like that? Who set the wild donkey free? Who loosed the bonds of the onager? Whose home I have made the wilderness and the barren land his dwelling? He scorns the tumult of the city. He does not heed the shouts of the driver. The range of the mountains is his pasture and he searches after every green thing. Did you make a wild donkey? And here's what he's getting at. I mean, it's a pointless animal. This donkey has no point. He He's wild. He lives in the wilderness. He doesn't go by the city. People have no use for this animal. He's pointless. Why was he made? For God's glory. Right? Can you do something like that? Make a, a stupid wild donkey for God's glory? And really the point is, we are without purpose like a stupid wild donkey. That is us. And it says in Psalm 32, uh, David is writing, don't be, to paraphrase, Don't be like a dumb animal that has to be chained up or it's going to run away. right? And he's saying that about us and our relationship with God. Look, God is going to chain you up if you're so dumb that you're going to run away every time you get the chance. And he's saying, don't be like that. We have the Holy Spirit living in us. We don't need to be like a dumb donkey that has no purpose. Our purpose is to worship our Creator. But if we can't make something like a dumb donkey, again, yet we... Tell God what He can and cannot do. Will the wild ox be willing to serve you? Will He bed by your manger? Can you bind the wild ox in the furrow with ropes? Or will He plow the valleys behind you? Will you trust Him because His strength is great? Or will you leave your labor to Him? Will you trust Him to bring home your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? Can you tame a wild ox? A wild ox, are you going to chain it up with a plow and trust it to bring your stuff home? No, if you can't tame a wild ox, why do you think you got your own life under control? Right? That's, that's the point. The Bible says in, in James that we can't even tame our tongue. If you could tame your tongue, you'd be pretty much perfect, is what the Bible says. We can tame horses. We can make huge ships and direct them with a tiny rudder. But our little tongue, our little tongue is out of control. 
Because we use it, yeah, to build people up, but we also use it to tear people down. We use it to praise God, but we also use it to curse God. Right? We can't tame ourselves. We can't tame a wild ox, but we think we know how to run our lives better than God. Verse 13, The wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but are her wings and pinions like the kindly storks? For she leaves her eggs on the ground and warms them in the dust. She forgets that a foot may crush them or that a wild beast may break them. She treats her young harshly as though they were not hers. Her labor is in vain without concern because God deprived her of wisdom and did not endow her with understanding. When she lifts herself on high, she scorns the horse and its rider. Look, can you understand an ostrich? An ostrich is dumb. The ostrich buries its eggs and forgets about them because God didn't give the ostrich any wisdom. So it, it describes you the ostrich doing everything that she can do. She's laying her eggs. She's burying them. And then she forgets they're there and they get crushed. And it says that her labor is in vain without concern. Again, that's, that's us in our pride. We're living our lives, burying our eggs in the sand, trying to you know, store our possessions away, get, get all of our lives put together. It's all taken away like that, just like what happened with Job, or it can be. Or we work so hard for something something that's so important to us for a short time. Then we forget about it. It's crushed like the egg and we forget all about it. Right? We're like the stupid ostrich. Our labor is in vain when we're living in our pride, away from our purpose of worshiping our Creator. Verse 19. Have you given the horse strength? Have you clothed his neck with thunder? Can you frighten him like a locust? His majestic snorting strikes terror. He paws in the valley and rejoices in his strength. He gallops into the clash of arms. He mocks at fear and is not frightened, nor does he turn back from the sword. The quiver rattles against him, the glittering spear and javelin. He devours the distance with fierceness and rage, nor does he come to a halt because the trumpet is sounded. At the blast of the trumpet, he says, Aha! He smells the battle from afar, the thunder of captains and shouting. Can you make something as amazing as a horse? I mean, think about a horse. It's an animal. But it charges into battle. It's not afraid of a trumpet. It's not afraid of what it sees. But we live our lives in fear. I mean, that's what I already said. We hide our pride. We hide it because we're afraid of what people are going to think of us, what we're going to think about ourselves. But an animal like a horse will charge into battle. And God will give us His Spirit. See, the Bible says in Romans that God did not give us a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but He's given us a spirit of sonship to be His heirs. That means when God makes us His children, He doesn't give us the spirit that we've got to be afraid of everything, but that we can boldly march into battle, into spiritual battle, as God's warriors, like this horse. But without Him, we're, we're cowards. We can't even admit how sinful we are and how much we need God. Again, the last bit of questions for tonight. Does the hawk fly by your wisdom and spread its wings toward the south? Does the eagle mount up at your command and make its nest on high? On the rock it dwells and resides, on the crag of the rock and in the stronghold. From there it spies out the prey, its eyes observe from afar. Its young ones suck up blood, and where the slain are, there it is. I mean, these are, they're all pretty simple questions. I mean, when you think about it, they're pretty simple. It's not uh, rocket science or anything like that. Simple questions. Where were you when the earth was created? Can you make an ox? Can you make birth? 
Simple questions. Can you even do one of these things? No. You can't. Job can't. And if that's the answer, if these simple things we can't do, we can't understand, then why so much pride? And it's not... See, Job's pride was in his suffering. That he was suffering, he felt like he didn't deserve it, that God was being unfair to him, and God can't operate like this. God has to only bless him. Sometimes our pride, though, is in our our self-righteous deeds. It's the same thing, though. I've been a good person. I don't deserve this from God. Well, actually, it's more like I do deserve this from God. I deserve these good things God is giving me because I've been good. Why so much pride? See, this is God speaking to Job. And all what Job has wanted this entire book, I need a chance to talk to God. Let me plead my case before God, and I'll make God understand why he's wrong. Did Job get a chance to plead his case? No. I mean, we can grandstand and boast to God all we want, but if God shows up, all we're going to do is what Job says here in a second. He said, I'm going to shut up. I don't know what I'm talking about. Because I can't do any one of these things. See, these are important questions because God's going to ask again. We're going to do the very start of chapter 40 to see the response here. Because God's going to ask again. Chapter 40. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. If you're going to contend with God, you better be ready to correct him. Show God why he's wrong. If you can't do these things, you can't correct him. He can do these things, you can't. You can't correct him. If you're going to rebuke God, you better, you're better. you going to have to answer to God. If you can't answer any one of these questions, you cannot answer to God. None of us can. And that's why Jesus' death on our behalf and his righteousness is so important. Because we can't answer God. But he asked Job again, Answer me. Correct me, Job. This is the chance you've wanted. Plead your case to me right now. Look what Job says. Here's... Here's Job's response, and this has to be our response, if we're honest. Verse 3, Then Job answered the Lord and said, He finally speaks up, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I'll proceed no further. See, there's Job's answer. God has exposed Job's pride. Even though Job was suffering. Even though Job had been a a good, God-fearing man. And even though it looks unfair, he'd lost so much. His family and his possessions and his kids. This is what he says. I am vile. It's like, I'm nothing. God, when you ask me these questions, when you show me my pride, I'm exposed. I'm, I'm nothing. And then he says, what shall I answer you? God has told Job he's going to answer. And what I like here, we'll see next week as we finish Job, God doesn't let him get away with this answer. God asked for an answer. And Job's trying to avoid it. And God doesn't let him get away with it. But he says, what shall I answer to you? I'm vile. What shall I answer? He's wanting not to answer. So God doesn't let him off the hook. So he says, I lay my hand over my mouth. I've spoken, but I'm not going to speak again. So he says, I'm nothing and I'm going to shut up. Like I said, that's, that's a good response. It's a good starting point. God doesn't let him off the hook. He hasn't repented yet. 
He just said, I'm nothing and I'm going to shut up. Sometimes we stop there. It's a good place, but it's not repentance. But let's, let's stop there for tonight. Because sometimes we at least need to stop there. I'm nothing and I'm going to shut up. I want to end looking at a couple things in the New Testament real quick. Let's go to Romans chapter 3. We'll start at verse 10. It says, As it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. And their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Look, it's clear right there. Same thing. We need to shut up. Once in a while, in our boasting to God, God, why are you doing this to me? God, I don't deserve this. God, you can't do this. Sometimes we just need to shut up. That's what it says, that the law has made us all guilty. That every mouth may be stopped. Because we are all guilty before God. We have nothing to stand on. If we think of our own pride and our own sin, we have nothing to stand on to call out God. We have nothing. Because it says, by deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. That gets to our pride. By anything you do, you are not made innocent before God. By things you do. No one is justified by deeds of the flesh. It's by Jesus you are justified. Because of God's grace to send his son into the earth to forgive us, to die for our sins. That's how you are justified. Not by what you do. So that boasting is excluded. There is no pride. Because we are saved by grace. So we need to shut up. But it doesn't end there. right? We're going to get it finished Job next week. It doesn't end with just shutting up. Okay, the last thing is in Philippians. Philippians 2. Okay, it doesn't end with just shutting up. Common verses, but let's look at these. Chapter 2, starting at verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. See, Jesus, who is God, it says, he was in the form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God. Jesus is God. He is creator, and he is worthy of all worship, and he is not worthy to be humiliated like he was. But, because of love, he made himself of no reputation, took on the form of a bondservant, and came in the likeness of a man. God became a man. God the Son became the God-man, Jesus Christ. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. See, Jesus, even though he never needs to humble himself, he humbled himself to the point of death, the humiliating death of dying on a cross. After being beaten, spit on, slapped, his beard plucked out, probably naked, on a cross, humiliated. 
bearing the wrath for your pride in mine. But because Jesus did that, therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, it doesn't end with just shutting up. It's not enough just to say, you know what, God, I am guilty, I'm going to shut up. It's not just being quiet. It's that every tongue, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So let's do a few things here. As God humbles us, hopefully. I can't answer any of God's questions and neither can you. Let's do a few things. Yeah, we're vile. We can't speak up to God. We need to shut up. But we're also not just going to do that. We're going to exalt Jesus. We're going to exalt His name, the name that is above every other name. We're going to bow our knee at the name of Jesus. And our tongues are going to confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God our Father. Because it's through Him that we are saved. It's through Him that we have a relationship with God. Not through the works of our flesh. Not through my pride. It's through Jesus, who humbled himself to the point of death so that we could be forgiven and have a relationship with God the Father. So let's pray to him. Father, we thank you that you you come and you speak to us. Even when we're not asking for it, even when you're on look for it, you speak to us. And what you have to say is much greater than what we have to say. Because what you have to say gives the glory to you, not to us. So help us, Father, to get that spotlight off of us, to realize we have no right to boast or grandstand or complain or be bitter towards you, Father, for what's happened in our lives. But all we should do is be humbled by you, confess, Jesus, that you are God and you are Savior, and ask forgiveness. So Father, I pray that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, humble us tonight, whether it's in our suffering or whether whether it's in our good deeds, that you would show us it's about you, God, not about us. And if there's anyone listening who, who is not a Christian, who is, their pride has blinded them to who you are, God, I pray you would break down that wall. You would invade their life. Show them that you are God, and it's only through your Son, Jesus, that we are forgiven, and it's in His name that we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a live teaching from the River Christian Fellowship, the home of CSN. If you'd like to hear today's teaching again, you can catch the free podcast by searching the iTunes store for the River Christian Fellowship, or call us at 800-357-4226. Don't forget to catch next week's morning service at 10 a.m. Mountain Time, and tune in next week for more from the River Christian Fellowship.